Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Amanda Nicastro. And Amanda is a writer and actor um, of an award-winning show that actually went to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe recently called I'm Just Kidneying, which she's going to tell us all about because she is the loved one of somebody with an invisible illness. So Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's totally a pleasure. It's so great to finally meet you. Amanda is the wife of a very good friend of mine from New York. So this is just such a pleasure to actually properly meet you and, <laughs> and chat. <laughs> so let's start from the very beginning. When and how did you first realize that your loved one, in this case, your sister was sick? What was going on that brought you guys to this point where you were helping her out? So she was diagnosed when she was in the fourth grade. So the events surrounding her diagnosis are at this point a little fuzzy for me. I don't Mm -hmm. exactly remember what um, prompted my parents to be like, no, something's wrong. But she was diagnosed with nephrotic syndrome in the fourth grade, which they later re-diagnosed as FSGS, focal segmental glomerular sclerosis. Um, That doesn't sound confusing at all. (laughs) (laughs) Big long name, and basically um, it attacks the filtration systems in the kidney, and for lack of uh, more medical explanation terminology, it it turns the filtration system basically into scar tissue, and it, mm. kidneys can't do that part of their job. Um, but yeah, I I most vividly remember like the time like after her diagnosis. Like I don't remember this, but I do. My mom had told me this story that it was one of the one of the times where they had come back from meeting her nephrologist and um, they started to talk about the the event in the event she would need a kidney transplant because mm-hmm. with FSGS, it's not a matter of if your kidneys fail, it's a matter of when they fail. And um, they were talking about replacing the whole kidney and not just the valves as you're talking about. Yeah, like the whole total kidney transplant. Yeah. And actually when you, when you have, when you have um, <clears throat> like a disease that affects the kidneys you were born with, they don't take those out. So mm-hmm. she, she, when she got a kidney transplant, um, the first time around, she's had two, mm-hmm. uh, they just put the new one in and it, they put it in like a pocket in your pelvis in the front. So, and then the, the two that are left, the body kind of reabsorbs them once they stop working. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they, the way it was described to me is that they eventually become like the size of like a walnut. Wow. Yeah. So and they just stay in there. So they've never, they've never taken, I mean, I doubt there's much of them left at this point. Like the, her original kidneys stopped working a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And the way it was like explained to us is the body kind of breaks tissue that's 
dead for lack of a better word or like not being used down and and know. absorbs it as you've said yeah. so yeah. is this a situation where she would constantly need to have transplants like i know you said that she's had two transplants but does it mean that the two that she's had transplanted will eventually be reabsorbed by the body and she'll need new ones again they don't know so um uh her disease typically when you get a transplant it can go into remission Mm -hmm. um sometimes it doesn't and for my sister when she got her first transplant she got a kidney from our dad Mm. um and it did recur she got nine years out of the first kidney um and then her and i are not blood type matches um but we were i was able to donate for her via a paired kidney exchange um what does that mean so we were we were matched with another donor and another recipient and we basically swapped kidneys like hot potato kidney swap like wow <laughs> <laughs> so we basically like i met we we actually did wind up meeting them later mm. um, it was a husband and wife um and so i gave my kidney to his wife because i matched her and mm. then he gave his kidney to my sister because they matched each other so this is a system that exists where yeah, they, do long, big chain. they do long 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 big chains sometimes yeah wow that's amazing and where do these yeah. people live they actually live in north carolina Wow. And you guys are in New York or you're in New York. Where's your sister? I'm in New York. My sister's also in North Carolina. Okay. So, okay. So the bottom line here is that your sister got a kidney from your dad and then you donated a kidney. So you're a loved one who has participated to the point of donating a kidney, whether it went directly to your sister or not, she got a kidney through the exchange. So how did her, her FSGS affect your relationship and your day to day as you were growing up, up to the point of donation? Um, I don't, so when we were kids and growing up, like before, I want to say before the first transplant, I feel like we, we had a very normal sister relationship. Um, Mm. we're five years apart. So, um, there was a chunk of time where like I hit puberty and she was still very much a kid. And, uh, both of us were like, don't leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was more like, leave me alone. And she was like, why doesn't she want to play with me? Um, so anyway, um, it was kind of like that until I graduated from high school. And I think we started getting closer a, because she was, she was now older now and in her teens. And mm-hmm. then also, um, I wasn't, when I wasn't a match, like I got tested the first time around. Like it, like, and I don't ever remember anyone being like, do you want to do, like, I remember being like, I'm going to do this, like growing up with her and this diagnosis and watching her, um, have to do things like low sodium diet and taking medication every day at the same time. I was like, no, I want to do this for her. Mm. Um, and then I wasn't a match and that, um, it's a blow. It was really hard for me. And I think that, I think we started getting a more closer relationship at, at that point. Like I remember going on weekend trips to go visit her. She went to university of North Carolina at Asheville. So I would go spend the weekend with her. And, mm. um, and I definitely think like post donation, um, we definitely have a better relationship for it. Like we yeah. basically just spent, so like I took the full, they recommend eight weeks, um, because you're not allowed to lift anything heavier than 10 pounds for right. eight weeks. Um, and I took the whole eight weeks off and we basically spent that summer that we both had our surgeries together, bonding, binging Netflix. Um, sorry, say that again, affected our relationship positively. Like I would give anything for her to have like 
two normal working kidneys that she was born with, but we have a really good relationship. And how long ago was it that you donated the kidney? I donated five years ago. Mm. So she's gotten five years. Yeah. And um, to your earlier question, um, we don't know. Right now she's still good. The FSGS actually recurred after her second transplant, but they had, um, they did a, uh, they did a, a treatment option where they filtered some kind of protein out of her blood. They put like a port in her chest hmm. um, and it sent it back into remission. So it's not affecting the newest kidney anymore. Um, and as far as I know, she's still good. In fact, the last time I talked with her, she had been told she could do her blood work every other month. In oh, wow. Yeah. Instead of every month. And I remember when she used to have to do it every week. So that's a huge deal for chronic kidney patients. Yeah, absolutely. So did you ever feel like, I mean, it sounds like you guys are really close and this has only brought you closer, but did you ever at any point feel like you were making sacrifices for her or, you know, um, anything that like sort of made you feel negative about the experience or that the experience was unjust for her? Well, I definitely felt like things were unjust for her. Like, Mm. um, like there were parts, there were periods before her first transplant, you know, where she was on certain medications that would make her gain a lot of weight, mm. steroids that were like a lot of hair growth. And like, that was like during her teen years, like definitely. Which are awkward enough. <laughs> yeah, they're awkward enough. You don't need extra awkward. Mm. Um, and like, I remember one of her favorite foods as a kid was like potato chips. And it's like, you can't, when you're on a low sodium diet, you can't have those. So mm. like, I never, I think I because we kind of had the relationship where I, where I would definitely tease her about some things, mm. but I never teased her about any of those because mm. I was like, no, that's off limits. Like I would do something like, I'd be like, Brenna, I've already had five glasses of water today. How many glasses have you had? And she'd be like, shut up. She's, <laughs> she's supposed to drink tons of water, but, um, yeah. but I wouldn't, I wouldn't poke fun about the other things. Cause yeah. definitely felt sad that she, had to go unjust, as you said, was definitely the right term. Yeah. But it sounds like you never felt like you were sacrificing anything. And obviously the, the thought of donating your kidney, it was a given to you. Yeah. No, I've never really, no, I've never felt like I've had to sacrifice anything, even Mm -hmm. though I did literally give up a kidney. (laughs) (laughs) So you did technically sacrifice something, but (laughs) and like, honestly, like if I ever viewed anything as a sacrifice, I probably would have done it anyway. Mm. Um, because she's your sister and you love her. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Why don't you tell everyone about the show that you created about this experience called I'm Just Kidneying, which I think is such a cute title. And and because obviously this is a part of how your support of your sister has turned into advocacy on a larger scale. So tell us about the show and about the work that you're doing to raise awareness for kidney diseases and donations. Yeah. So it's it's a one woman show. It's an hour long and it's I'd like to describe it to people like a sketch show and a storytelling show had a baby. Mm. Um, So it cuts back and forth between like flashbacks to that summer um, that the transplant took place and then more narrative storytelling monologues where I do interact. Like there's no interaction. There's no audience participation, but I do make (laughs) eye contact. The fourth wall comes down. Right. Uh, Like I have to tell people that people get very much like, Oh, audience. No, I know (laughs) people freak out about audience participation. Um, um, and it pretty much follows the story of the evaluation process of donating a kidney um, and how I do not feel comfortable with the label hero. Because when you tell people you donated a kidney, and I, 
via doing the show, I've met so many other living kidney donors and Mm. most of them will tell you the same thing. It's just really awkward for people to come up to you and be like, oh my God, you made such a sacrifice. You're such a hero. Because for most people, they have, I think for most living, most of the living donors I know either knew, knew the person they were donating to or for, or they have a very personal reason for why they wanted to do a mm-hmm. non-directed donation. So it's it, in their mind, it's more of like, um, a, a, like a civil duty. Like it's mm-hmm. something to do to help other people. Like it's the same you would do as like, if you were going to donate to a charity at the end of the year or volunteer for Habitat for Humanity or something, it's, it's your way of giving back to others who don't or who need something. So, right. oh, and like I, when I first started writing the show, I don't know, I did not have such an idea of advocacy in mind. I was really just jotting down the funny things that would happen. Um, Like uh, when you donate a kidney, you have to do a 24 hour urine collection (laughs) and you have to keep it cold. So you, I packed my urine sample in my jug in a cooler because it had to be cold. And I don't own a car in New York. I did most of my evaluation testing remotely. And so I went on the subway with my little cooler of pee. <laughs> and this guy, this creep guy comes up. Because, you know, guys will take any uh, opportunity to talk to a woman out in yes, public. Yes, they will. And he would prefer <laughs> be left alone. Yep. <laughs> um, and so he comes up to me and he's like, uh, he didn't ask specifically what was in the cooler, but he would, he would say things like, are you going on a picnic? Oh, God. Is it your lunch? It, uh, are you going to the beach? And like in... In real life, I like shuffled away from the creepazoid and right. finally made my way. But I was on the train and I was thinking like, wow, that would be a really funny scene if I was like, you, you want to know what's in the cooler? It's a cooler full of my own pee. <laughs> and now I'm the weird one on the subway platform. <laughs> so yep. I, would, I just started writing down all of these funny um anecdotes and and thoughts about the process Mm. um and the first rendition of the show was really just like a 30 minute sketch show that went from like comedy comedy scene to comedy scene and I it always did culminate with because like because at the end of the show I'm like you know my sister is the one who deals with this illness that Mm. people don't always know that she has she's the real hero like she's the one that has to take pills every day she's the one that has to get her blood tested yeah, all that stuff. So like, she's the one who you should be uh, heaping praise upon. Not me. All I did was binge Netflix for eight weeks. And then I went <laughs> back to my life as normal. Like nothing about my life has changed. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And it was later on that I added um, larger parts. Um, like I have, I have friends um, who live in Texas, whose father passed away not too long ago. Um, Cause he was on dialysis so long. Mm. Um, his, um, his body just, it took such a toll on his body and his, and other aspects of his health took a turn for the worse. Um, he was no longer an eligible, eligible candidate for a transplant. Oh, wow. That happens to some people. You've got active and you've got inactive members who are waiting for organs. The inactive people will, will never be cleared for surgery for whatever reason in their personal medical history. Um, and when he, and when he was given that news, at some point he decided that he was no longer the quality of his life was no longer what it should be. And he made the decision to stop doing dialysis and they put him in hospice care. Hospice wow. care. And you know, most people don't realize that dialysis is sometimes like that shitty of a thing for people to go through. 
Yeah. My sister thankfully has never had to go on dialysis. Like by the time her kidneys reached a point where she needed a transplant, she had two living donors mm. who stepped up. So she's never had to do that. Um, but she might, mm. you know, so I've incorporated other stories like that in like other, you know, like in the U S um, um, every 10 minutes, someone is added to the organ donor wait list, mm. not just kidneys. Like that's a, that's a statistic for everything, but that's every, it's every 10 minutes. Yeah. Somebody has been told you need an organ transplant. And that's, I mean, aside from the fact that that's no joke, the wait periods for these organs can sometimes be years, very long. Yes. Years. If, as you say, you even end up getting the organ in time. Right. So you're also as part of taking the show, I mean, you've taken the show around the world, you've taken it around the country and you've taken it over to Edinburgh. Um, and obviously you're, you're receiving awards for it and like getting notice. And as part of what you're doing with the show, you're also doing some awareness raising about organ donation, aren't you? Yeah. I usually, um, I work closely sometimes with live on New York. Mm-hmm. Um, they, um, they have DMV drives. They have legislation education day where we all go up to Albany, like, um, staff members and other volunteers and other people who've had transplants or donor family members, people who made the decision that when their loved one uh, passed on, that they said, mm. yes, this is something that they would want. So we all, we bus up together and we talk to um, our representatives about organ, do- organ donation legislation. So like, mm. I remember talking about a bill that would have designated organ transplant vehicles emergency status. Mm because they don't have that. <laughs> wow. That's unbelievable. They take normal transportation when they're transporting an organ. And they're expected to be okay by the time they get there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's really unreal to me. I mean, the whole concept of like keeping an organ alive for that period of time is one thing, but then on a bumpy road, on a truck going across the country and all that kind of thing is like, Wow. I've seen the pods that they put the kidneys in and they're pretty cool. They, mm. they definitely look like something out of a science fiction movie that keeps them alive while they're Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess they're hooking them up to sort of pretend tubes and valves. And I'm all not different exactly kinds of sure how the little contraption works, but it keeps, yeah, it keeps it. Yeah. I mean, obviously it works because your sister's living with a kidney now. <laughs> that's she wasn't born with. So that's pretty exciting. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to Uninvisible Pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R-Labs.com, enter code INVISIBLE30, that's INVISIBLE30 at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. So given your experience and, and your experience, you know, with legislature and also within the healthcare system, are, are there ways in which our system is really working for patients and ways in which it really needs improvement from what you can see? Yeah. Um, I, well, one of the ways I think that it's working is that, um, support for organ donation awareness is, is pretty bipartisan. Mm. It's, 
amazing to me because I feel like we're living in those kinds of times where nothing is bipartisan right now. <laughs> yeah, that's um, really true. Yeah. So, so this, the, I guess the foundation for the support is there. Um, and it's very nice that, um, renal end stage renal disease parent patients can be covered by Medicare. Um, mm. even if they're not 65. That's amazing. Yeah. And then like, I feel like our scientific and medical community has made great strides. Mm. Um, where I feel like it's failing is, um, especially considering Medicare is they'll pay for dialysis. They'll pay for transplant. They will only pay for anti-rejection drugs for three years post transplant. Which may not be enough for some people, huh? Which is not going to be enough for some people. There are people who have lost jobs and lost health insurance and said, how am I going to keep my kidney? How Mm. I can't afford these drugs. And in the long run, it's more economical to cover the drugs than for someone to lose a transplanted kidney, go back on dialysis, or have another transplant. Because Medicare will pay for those again if they have to go through the the cycle all over again. It just seems Yeah. It's very interesting you bring this up because I feel like this is a discussion that I have with guests on the show across the board. It's not just about organ donation, but that if we invested more in preventive care, mm-hmm. we would actually save a lot more money. And that's the thing that's broken about the system. Yeah. 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 And just by talking to other, other donors, um, I have learned that all transplant centers are not created equal. <laughs> like I had a very, and I don't know if it was because it was a pilot program so, because where I donated at the Carolinas Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, the, when I donated five years ago, it was actually a pilot program. It wasn't, they were, it was new for the hospital. Mm. And I felt like uh, my transplant coordinator and the nurses who worked in the center and nephrologists that I talked to, everyone it was very hands-on. Like I never, I didn't, and they even at some point right before we went into surgery were like, you know, a lot of times some living donors feel like post-surgery, the focus is on the recipient. We just want you to know, like, we're here if you need us. And I was like, it makes sense to me. Like, that's amazing. That's a lot their, of support. Yeah. Yeah. But I have found through talking to other people, some people have not had that support. Like mm. they go to a lab to get their lab work done and the lab would be like, I don't know how to process this insurance wise. Oh, and man. they wouldn't get a response from their transplant coordinator so they would have to pay for it out of pocket and then hopefully get reimbursed later. Mm. Um, it's just, they're not all created equal. And I wonder like, couldn't, isn't there a way that we could make this, the level of care more standardized and more uniform? Yeah. That? Sort of centralize that. Yeah. In a, in a way as well. And what about like media representation too? Like, are you finding that there is enough that maybe it needs to change where it comes to invisible illness? You yeah. Know? Um, I don't think that there's enough. Um, mm. I don't know. I can't tell you how many times that I've been watching like a TV show and someone has made a joke about selling a kidney or taking mm. a kidney. And I've been like, ah, why yeah. is that always the trope? Um, well, isn't that the, that the, the real like urban legend thing is that people go, you know, to Eastern Europe or something and they're partying and the next thing they wake up in a bath full of ice cubes and they've had organs removed. Right. Yeah, that is, that is here. And that is not true. I mean, there yeah. is, there is a, a, very serious problem internationally about illegal organ harvesting, but mm-hmm. that's happening to very poor people in other countries who are being taken advantage of, not tourists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not tourists. yeah. So, um, and yeah, and like, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a show on Netflix called Chambers and it was 
it was a big to do in the organ donation community. I saw mm. so many organizations like put it out on their social media that Netflix was not being responsible because it, I think further another, there's another like urban legend. Like if you get the organ and you take on characteristics of that person. And I think it's like in this, I think in the story, she like got a heart from a murderer and she started becoming a murderer or whatever. Yes. I um, believe that's the case. Yeah. Like there's already enough. There's, there's already enough. Um, like you said, mythology around donation, like people don't think that you can have an open casket funeral. You can, mm-hmm. if you want to be a post, um, if you want to be a living donor after you pass, um, mm-hmm. or not a living donor, excuse me, if you want to be a registered organ donor, you can have an open casket funeral. That's, that's, they can still do that. Mm-hmm. So it's just, you know, yeah, there needs to be more positive, better representation. Like positive representation, as yeah. you said. I mean, that's where your show kind of begins to fill a gap, right? Like it's the first of hopefully many more things of its ilk that will help people sort of change their opinion about organ donation. Um, And it's interesting that you bring up that show Chambers on Netflix because, you know, I've talked to a few other people on the show about other programming, original Netflix programming that um, has been controversial as well within the disability community, the invisible illness community. Um, shows like Afflicted and most recently Diagnosis. Um, and, you know, it's fascinating to me that the the point of view that a network like that seems to be taking, even though they support so many of us with chronic illness when we sit for those eight weeks, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, binging shows or... Yeah. Or when we like deal with fatigue and sort of can't get out of bed, but the very least we can do is watch a show on Netflix. It's amazing because in one way they're really supportive of those of us who are going through these processes. But on another level, they're creating this original programming that's actually not necessarily painting this community in a good light um, and not really giving people positive stories that reinforce the idea of helping others and, and seeking the correct diagnosis and things like that. It's very fascinating to me that, you know, we're coming down hard on Netflix, even though we love them. I love Netflix. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They don't even, I don't, do they still do the thing where they ask you if you're still watching? Yes, they do. That hasn't (laughs) happened to me in a while. So I feel like Netflix has just learned like, Oh no, she's here. (laughs) She loves us. Like it's, not that account. We don't need to ask that account anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do. I will say like when there are positive representations, I, I'm very happy with them. I don't remember. It's like a syndicated show on one of the major uh, networks where they did, they did have like a, um, a family had decided to re-gift their loved one's organs when they passed mm-hmm. and they did a shot of what they call an honor walk, which is apparently something that does happen in some hospitals. Mm. Um, And I think this incident was based on a true story. And I was like, that's great. That's wonderful. Like I do wish, um, because generally when you do see representations of of organ donation or kidney disease in the media, it's very focus heavy on the transplant, which is good. If it's a positive representation, that's great. Because then you Mm. can inspire people and give them a more realistic view of of the reality of organ donation, but, um, I feel like there's not a lot focused on like from somebody like my sister's point of view, Mm. um, where you see someone, a character or whatever, going to do dialysis if they have to do that or having to take those medications. Or like, I remember, um, when my sisters, we had the same chemistry teacher, the same Mm -hmm. high school chemistry teacher and Mr. His name was Mr. Gandhi. And he was a good teacher, but he was a very, 
hard and like strict teacher. Um, mm-hmm. Like his classroom was his classroom. Like it was his rules. And he like to things like you couldn't leave to go to the bathroom if your lab wasn't finished or whatever. Oh God. I remember my mom like marched into that classroom and was like, when my sister had him, she was like, if she has to go, you need to let her go. If she needs to sit down, you need to let her sit down because she is a chronic kidney patient. And if she says she needs that, she needs it. And Mr. Yanny was like, yes, ma'am, Mrs. McCaffrey. No. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I very rarely, like, I feel like there are other things we see in the media that deal with some illnesses like that, but I don't necessarily, I don't know that I've seen that. The patient perspective really, isn't it? Yeah. You only ever see them when it gets to the very end where they need the transplant and will their long lost father give it to them or will their long, you know, estranged twin sister give it to them? Yeah, it's absolutely true, actually. Yeah. Um, and, And it's what you say about that idea of this hero trope, right? That like then the person who makes the donation becomes the hero. And yet the person who's living with this illness day to day is never the one who gets the hero status, even though they're still waking up and getting through, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. But that's again, where like addressing it directly with shows like I'm just kidneying really help people change their perspective. Hopefully if they're listening. Yeah. So, um, I know that you're working towards certain like legislative things and, and, you know, working with live on New York with the improvements that need to happen within the healthcare system. Can you see specific ways aside from like standardizing care in these um, kidney care centers um, or, you know, going and fighting for, you know, particular legislation to pass or not pass as the case may be, are there particular ways in which you can see this, shifting and this whole narrative shifting within the larger scope of the healthcare system? Um, yeah, I mean, two things. I think that we need to do a better job at educating the public. Mm -hmm. I think you'll see that change longer down the line Mm -hmm. because people just don't know. Like if you ask them, like, do you support transplantation? They're like, yeah, people want to live. They should, they should live. That's good. That's noble. But they don't know anything beyond that. I remember Mm -hmm. I volunteered to go help a school out in Queens with a unit they were doing on organ donation. It was part of the biology science class. That's very cool. That'd be a very progressive teacher. I I was like, why isn't this in all, like why aren't all middle schools or high schools doing like a chapter on this? And then like maybe incorporating it with like a civics or an ethics class. Like why is this not happening? And then like second, um, I like, I hate, I hate to like bring this up, but the recent executive order about uh, kidney health, mm. even though it's coming from an administration that I shall not name, uh, yeah. <laughs> I do actually think that it is a right step in the right direction because mm. one of the big things about it is trying to remove barriers for living donors. Because honestly, and I didn't really know this until recently, I recently did some work with an organization called Weightless Zero. Um, and um, one of the co-founders, um, his name's Josh Morrison. He was like, yeah, you know, even if everyone was a registered organ donor, uh, our supply would still fall short. Like we still need living donors to step up. Mm. So when we live in a country that doesn't do wage reimbursement, doesn't help with childcare, doesn't help with elder care, um, doesn't give you like, I, if, if the pre-existing clause went away tomorrow, like if the ACA was mm. de- demolished, 
I could be considered to have a pre-existing condition from several private health insurance companies, even though there is nothing wrong with me and I was deemed medically healthy enough to have elective surgery and remove an organ from my body. Mm. They might deny me coverage or charge me more based on this laparoscopic nephrectomy that I had. Wow. So there definitely needs like, this, yeah, we need to remove the barriers for that. <clears throat> yeah. No, I think those are all really salient points. And, and I think that's the thing is that if, you know, people are listening and they, they want to like get involved in helping change this story, right? The thing to do is to volunteer with various organizations like the ones you've mentioned um, and work toward legislation. I mean, it all seems to come down to politics, right? That like we need to actually vote for the right people in order to get the right policies in motion. And so if, you know, at the very, at the most basic level, the way we create that change is by voting for the people who are going to actually create it, right? Yeah. So the one of the last questions I wanted to ask you is about privilege <laughs> while we're talking about politics. Yeah. Right? Um, and I'm wondering if privilege or a lack thereof has played a role in any part of your experience um, with organ donation, you know, between your sister's medical history and your own, you know, whether it's being a woman, being a white woman, whatever it is, have you ever come across any kind of experiences that have made you go, gee, someone would have listened to me more or they would have listened to me less if? Um, I don't know that I'd have any people would have listened to me more. I'm a pretty loud vocal person. Mm. Um, so, but I do, I, I am very cognizant of the fact that I think my experience does come with a heavy dose of privilege. Um, I mean, because I think because I come from a very upper middle class family background and I'm white, like I didn't, I never even thought about like missing eight weeks from work. Like even if my employer hadn't said, yeah, your job's going to be here when you get back. Like my parents, you know, my, I'm, I wasn't married at the time, but I was dating my husband at the time. And I knew like him and his family all loved me. And like, they were also there for me. My grandparents at the time were still alive. Like I had a support system in place that all of those people were financially sound enough that I did. I never even thought about it. And I've met people who have had to think about that, who like, Oh, I wouldn't be able to take that much time off work. And I've heard stories of people who were fired because they tried to take that, like they got back to work and they were laid off and they were like, that was the reason. Um, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, you hear these stories all the time. Yeah. I never thought about this until we met two friends. We have uh, two friends who do a podcast called the comic book Junto. Junto. I think I mispronounced it. <laughs> pretty cool podcast. I don't always listen to it. It combines comic books and um, like philosophy. Um, Octavius and Adam are two friends and Octavius uh, went through renal failure and he needed a kidney and Adam donated for him. Oh, wow. Octavius is black and Adam is white. And like the conversations that I listen to them about how information is spread through white communities and black communities, like it's not equal. Like yeah. African-American communities do not have the same access, like access to um, healthcare and information. Like they, all those systematic barriers are in place. And I never thought about that before. I was like, oh, oh, you're right. And this vastly, and then it's, it's in terms of organ donation, it's, sad because statistically um the african-american population has higher higher rates of kidney disease so wow like, wow yeah that's really interesting and it's a really fair point isn't it and i mean this is we hear this story over and over again um that we know that 
African-American communities are always given less information, right? Like there's, there's just less support for them medically in particular. Um, so it's really important that we speak out about these things so that hopefully that can change in the future. And, and I think a very valid sense of distrust of the medical community community has come out of um, people taking advantage of the African-American community in terms of medical advancements. Like that's there. And I I didn't think about that either until we were all together one night talking about those things. I was like, oh, you're right. Totally right. Yeah, absolutely. So can you tell everyone where they can find you? Hmm. You can find me on my website, imjustkidneying.com, and <laughs> my Twitter handle is at the last Amanda, and my Instagram is at imjustkidneying. Amazing. Well, Amanda, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining Thank us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Absolutely. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.